Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE. Also, welcome to the latest in our series of lectures on the future of Europe, which we do in collaboration with FT Business, have done for some time, and a large number of European leaders have spoken in this program. And we are proud that on this occasion, uh, we have the president of Estonia, Thomas Hendrik Ilves, to speak to us. And we're delighted, sir, to welcome you to the school. President uh, Ilves has carried out almost every important role in uh, Estonia, uh, one way or, or another, has been a member of the European Parliament, has been Minister of Foreign Affairs, and indeed has spoken here at the school before when he was in that capacity about eight years ago, but was elected to his current post in October of 2006, so has been president of his country for two years. Uh, his background uh, is that he was born, in fact, in Sweden to Estonian uh, emigres at the time um, and was brought up largely in the United States um, and educated at uh, Columbia. If you can't be educated at the LSE, which is a misfortune for you, then um, <laughs> Columbia in the States is the next best thing because we do have a strong partnership with Columbia. As uh, our students here will know, we've got a number of uh, double degrees with Columbia. They are our main U.S. partner. So we welcome you as, a, uh, as an alumnus uh, from one of our partner uh, institutions. Um, the President has said that he's going to speak on European security architecture, a paradigm shift with a question mark at the end. So it leaves us in some suspense as to whether uh, there has been such a shift uh, or not. President, I greatly welcome you to the London School of Economics. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, uh, I don't know if I'm. I don't think I'm going to answer the question, but uh, but at least I'll pose the problems and uh, really ask perhaps also whether it is possible for the European Union, a structure based ultimately on values, to pursue a value-based foreign policy or not. Apparently only now, in the autumn of 2008, we can begin to fully appreciate the importance for Europe's security architecture that on both sides of the erstwhile Berlin Wall, we all, all the new members of the EU, all the new allies in NATO, expended that much, so much energy an effort to enlarge and to consolidate the extension of the zone of democracy and democratic market economies when we did in the 1990s and in the beginning of this century. For my country, uh, the goal of what I would call the restoration generation of politicians and civil servants was to reestablish an Estonia that is democratic and liberal, a member of the European Union and NATO, a goal that if we look at the post-Cold War world turned out to be hardly as self-evident as it might seem in retrospect. Alternative choices, as we have seen, abounded. 
that today we can all appeal to common democratic values that we instinctively feel and recognize the values of the Enlightenment, freedom in speech, expression, and association, the supremacy of law and justice, and human rights is rather an exception in the nations subjected to communism today. It suffices to look around us to see the alternative possibilities. We could, of course, in Estonia, chosen among a myriad of alternatives. We could have been a neutral, pragmatic small country, which some in the business community had always wished for, and which culminates, as it ineluctably must, in semi-independence and Finlandisierung, if I may use that term. In the worst case, it is a state in which all is for sale. In other words, a country not created for the Lockean protection of its citizens and the rule of law, but rather as a guarantor of rent-seeking behavior for some. Or we could have turned into a xenophobic, nationalistic, and therefore isolated, autarkic, and semi-authoritarian state where what matters is power, its possession, and preservation by any means, along with all of the material benefits that accrue from it, as has transpired in much of the post-Soviet world. Or we simply could have become a corrupt post-Soviet state where all that counts is who and what you pay, not justice or the law. It is, of course, no surprise that we can sense in the deeper reaches of Estonia's wishes and realities all of these tendencies. Estonia in its pre-war, or version 1.0 version, we experience these tendencies more than we would like to admit. Rather, it is a wonder that beginning with the reestablishment of our country, that is to say from the beginning of the Republic of Estonia version 2.0, we have managed to tame, stifle, block, or divert these same tendencies. When we examine the fate of countries liberated from communism, we must admit that the number of liberal and open democracies based on rule of law and respect of, for human and civil rights has not turned out to be overwhelming. Two decades ago, when I read Francis Fukuyama's original essay, The End of History, and sent a copy to then Soviet Estonia, believing it needed to be read and, if possible, published there, there reigned a general optimism in the inevitable Hegelian victory of liberal democracy. Today, looking at the rise of authoritarian capitalism in petrostates and the mechanisms of preserving the power of corrupt elites as a completely viable alternative to democracy, my optimism at the time seems rather naive. But the widespread success of these alternatives show me at least that the choices made in my country were the right ones, at least from the point of view of the people living there. But it needs to be stressed that these choices were not self-evident. A country's foreign policy always has difficulties escaping its past and its traditions. Thus, for example, the United States has considered the propagation and or defense of free markets and liberal democracy a cornerstone of its democracy, of its foreign policy, and indeed has even fought wars for some 200 years for these positions. 
It has been used to justify the Iraq operation as well as participation in World Wars I and II, as well as the enlargement of NATO, not to mention the invention of the notion of self-determination of nations by Woodrow Wilson 90 years ago. Similarly, Russia today makes no attempts to hide its admiration for the Soviet Union, yet at the same time considers the Tsarist State Chancellor Alexander Gorchakov, lived between 1798 and 1883, and who incidentally was born in Hapsalo, Estonia, uh, is considered the father of its foreign policy. Traditions are hard to shake. Russia's recent behavior and in international relations, in fact, can best be seen as a return to its 19th century roots. President Yeltsin's attempts to shift Russian foreign policy toward a more contemporary Western mode is considered in the resentment-powered policy thinking in um, today's Moscow as a humiliation, an exception forced upon it in a moment of weakness. All of this, of course, does not mean that a nation's foreign policy cannot, over time, change. Cataclysms and changes in the life of a country, first and foremost defeat and war, or occupation have left this mark not only on Estonia and other Baltic countries, but on a number of countries. Uh, so that uh, traditions can change, but usually dramatically. The other point about foreign policy traditions is that uh, very different experiences can lead to the same foreign policy results. Take, for example, Sweden's and Finland's neutrality and opposition to NATO membership. In Sweden's case, it's a 200-year-old policy dating back to an anti-Napoleonic alliance with Russia through which it obtained Norway from Denmark and ceded Finland to Russia. This established a policy of never particip participating in armed conflicts except in a, as in a peacekeeping role. Whence Swedish neutrality and its opposition to NATO membership for it is extremely difficult to change foreign, uh, foreign policy principle that has lasted for 200 years. And the same tradition has allowed Sweden to maintain a high moral profile in foreign affairs expressed in its opposition to the war in Vietnam, its role as a sanctuary for refugees from Latin American authoritarian regimes, but also in Karl Bildt's principled role in the withdrawal of Russian troops from the Baltic states in the early 90s, not to mention Sweden's position on the Georgia-Russia war. In a word, Swedish neutrality stands on a strong historical and moral foundation. Finnish opposition to NATO membership, on the other hand, comes from a much more recent foreign policy tradition, born in the winter and continuation wars and more importantly, subsequent events, loss of territory, reparation to the aggressor, conviction in court of their democratically elected president and government ministers, and the overall sense that Finland had been abandoned. Thus, Finland became a, quote, pragmatic, non-aligned country, a tradition followed to this day, and that finds a moral or values-based foreign policy difficult to follow. Which brings me to the sources of Estonian foreign policy. And in not only Estonian, but I would argue that the sources of foreign policy for a number of other so-called new European countries. 
In general, when Estonians talk about foreign policy, they talk of the trauma of quiet submission to Soviet occupation in 1940, and they talk of the legal continuity of the state. Personally, I do not think they are the sources of foreign policy thinking, though legal continuity of the state is undoubtedly a foundation of our existence. Far more important to my mind is the understanding held to this day that the paucity, or should I say in more contemporary parlance, self-managed uh, democracy in Estonia in the years 1934 to 1940 led to a dangerous isolation. There was far more sympathy in the rest of the world for Finland under Soviet aggression than for the three Baltic states since Finland was considered truly democratic, while democracy in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in the pre-war period was less than complete. This is hardly unimportant even today. In 2008, Georgia receives part of its support from the West because Russia's demand for regime change flies in the face of the legitimacy of the Georgian government and the Georgians' democratic choice especially considering that those demanding regime change cannot even come close to Georgia and maintaining democratic legitimacy in holding power. They simply were not elected in free and fair elections. Our own experience with the primacy of democracy and the consequences of insufficient democracy mean that for us, support for democracy and democracies have become a cornerstone of our foreign policy. In other words, Estonian foreign policy since its beginnings already before the reestablishment of independence has been value-based, something for which both domestically and abroad supporters of a so-called pragmatic foreign policy have criticized my country for almost two decades. Yet from our point of view and based on our history, Estonia's value-based foreign policy, support for democracy, market economies, rule of law, etc., is as much a pragmatic and ineluctable approach as some other countries studied silence in its relations with a stronger neighbor. Estonia's experience, its isolation as a result of imperfect democracy in the 1930s and its abandonment more generally, makes it, more <coughs> makes it extremely difficult even impossible to abandon solidarity with those countries where those same values and the underpinnings of our existence as a state have come under threat. This is fundamental and why it is odd to read journalists and diplomats talk about the Baltic states' knee-jerk anti-Russianness. These people just don't get it. It has nothing to do with being anti-Russian. It has to do with uh, a fundamental need to support democratically elected governments. Our experiences with joining the European Union and NATO only strengthened this tendency. The European Union demanded that countries entering it fulfill the Copenhagen criteria, which demanded that the countries that join be rule of law based democracy. NATO too, for although it had in 1950 taken Salazar's Portugal and tolerated military coups in Turkey, became at the end of the Cold War far more demanding and value-based than it had ever been before. In other words, pragmatism for Estonia is not the antithesis of a value-based foreign policy. 
Pragmatism and a value-based foreign policy go hand in hand. It is, in fact, a value-based foreign policy that got us, allowed us to achieve the pragmatic result of joining the European Union and NATO. In today's foreign and security policy environment on our continent, the antithesis of a value-based foreign policy is realism, realpolitik, that defines limits to which we can, defines the limits to which we can appeal to values, to international law, and to justice. The differing paths and responses that follow from realpolitik versus values create the tensions that exist in the national foreign policy of a country such as Estonia, but also within the European Union and even more so. When do we stand up for values, for principles such as territorial integrity and the impermissibility of the use of force to change borders? And when do we understand that nothing more can be done or that doing something begins to harm our own interests? This is precisely the tension between remaining true to one's ideals and true to the fundamental task of my country or any country, defending the nation and which defines the framework in which foreign policy makers must work day to day from event to event. For like it or not, we live in a world where not all share the fundamental values of Europe. But I'd like to go a little more broad, deep, delve into this a little more deeply and go more broadly into history. Ten years ago, I was asked to give a public lecture on how it was that Estonia had been invited to begin negotiations to join the European Union when our southern neighbors had not. I said that in foreign policy, we have a choice to derive satisfaction from stating some important historical truth only we ourselves fathom, showing some country what's what or what's not, or instead suppressing this impulse to achieve what we need to accomplish. I said that this was, and for a number of countries remains, a challenge faced by the, uh, by the East European countries released from communist bondage. With some exceptions that have more to do with size, those countries than the name of national interest have chosen goal-oriented behavior and strategies have been the winners in foreign policy. Those who have instead insisted on proving themselves right have had to discover the sad truth that, the level, that at the level of nation states, such notions as justice have little purchase. You can see justice and right in a well-functioning domestic legal system, but in interstate relations rarely. For more often, alas, might makes right, which is why at the threshold of the third decade of foreign policy in Estonia, version 2.0, we need to think about the role of justice and right just as we need to do so within the European Union. The intellectual foundation of the European Union, leaving aside, of course, the internal market, although even that is part of the same foundation, is Immanuel Kant's essay, Perpetual Peace, from 1795. A century and a half before Kant, the Westphalian Peace Treaty of 1648 with its principle of cuius regio eos religio, whoever's king, the, there is the religion, had largely eliminated religion as a casus belli 
and establish the principle of sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs. But the Westphalian Peace Treaty didn't prevent wars. They kept coming. They just were no longer about religion. <coughs> Kant believed already then that <coughs> in what is our contemporary foreign policy mantra, democratic states do not wage war on each other. Kant believed that only representative democracies based on rule of law brought together in a federation of free states can live in peace. Pressing the historical fast forward button 150 years and we reach Monet's and Schumann's vision of the European Union, precisely what Immanuel Kant wanted. And this is where the Estonian foreign policy and the broader European idea intersect, at least in theory. The European Union is based, up, is based on common values, the understanding that all practical or pragmatic issues can and must be resolved through negotiations concentrating on the process, and when that fails, we at minimum have the least common denominator which we can reach through consensus or qualified majority voting. The primary goal of Estonia's foreign policy, Estonia version, version 2.0 foreign policy, joining the European Union, has given one possible solution to the dilemma of all small states, how to survive among the strong. The aim of Estonia, and I would argue many other small countries in the EU, uh, in our foreign policy, is to achieve a Kantian perpetual peace between representative democracies tied together by mutual treaties and the rule of law. This is what we actually mean when we use the uh, last overused expression that the EU is ultimately a program for peace, but in fact it is. The problem with this whole vision of how we achieve peace in Europe and what rules we follow and how we get this legalistic Kantian system working through the EU is that if you are not tied to the system, if you are not ruled by, uh, you're not bound by the rule of law, then the Kantian solution simply doesn't work. When we deal with countries that recognize neither the rules nor the norms of international behavior, that <clears throat> or if they are tied to the system, say through the OSCE or the UN or through a partnership and cooperation agreement, but they nonetheless fail to live by the rules, then the entire framework fails. It no longer works. It <clears throat> then all that counts is force, might makes right. Instead of Immanuel Kant, we have Thomas Hobbes. There is nothing new in this dilemma. To the contrary, throughout history and long before there was a history, might makes right has been the norm. In fact, the second history book known to our culture, at least, Thucydides' Peloponnesian Wars from 431 BC, in the chapter familiar to us as the Melian Dialogues, describes what happens to the weak and small when the rules don't apply. Melos, a small island that had declared its neutrality in the Peloponnesian War, is approached by the Athenians who want the Melians to submit to them. The Melians ask for negotiations to maintain their neutrality. The Athenians 
agree to meet with the Melians and tell them they have a right to rule the Melians due to their superior force. Two thousand later, years later, we would call this Machiavellian, after Niccolo Machiavelli, for whom the fundamental question of politics was the effective use of force in order to increase one's power. There is no place in that system for morality or justice. But to return to the Melian dialogue, <clears throat> the Athenians informed the Melians that the question of right <clears throat> applies only when both sides have equal power to enforce it. Or to quote the famous expression, the strong do what they can and the weak do what they must. In other words, in the absence of an agreed upon system of rules, when there is an imbalance of force, all that matters is might. We see that today in Darfur, we see that today in Georgia. The Melians appeal, appeal that the supremacy of might could someday come to haunt the Athenians when faced with an even greater power yeah, is dismissed. The Athenians answer that not to use force would expose their weakness and thus decrease the Athenians' own security, a line that we have heard many times throughout history since then. In the end, the Athenians offer the Melians a choice faced by too many small nations of Europe through history. Submitting, you will avoid the worst and remain alive. The Melians decide not to give in to pressure. The Athenians kill all the Melian men and enslave all the Melian women and children. Seventy years ago in September, uh, if you weren't a foreign policy official, you probably didn't pay much attention to developments in Munich, where Adolf Hitler and Neville Chamberlain were carving up Czechoslovakia, where, according to Hitler, the Czechs were violating the rights of the German population. Returning to London, Chamberlain declared he had achieved peace in our time, this is 1938, and the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia he justified by stating, it is but a small, faraway place about which we know nothing. Most of Europe then had no clue as to what was about to happen. But presently, the paradigm changed. The act of carving up Czechoslovakia changed the rules of post-Versailles Europe. We don't know if knowing the paradigm had changed would have helped then or would have helped anyone but we must recognize that we too have just witnessed a cardinal paradigm shift in the foreign and security architecture of Europe 70 years after Munich in 2008. Just as we had gotten used to the idea that the post-Cold War world had become completely Kantian, where the only, only secure, serious security threat are Islamist terrorists waging an asymmetric war, Moreover, lacking the necessary tanks, bombs, and other attributes of Westphalian statehood, statehood really do not threaten us. And suddenly we discover that the rules, no use of force to change borders, and our assumption that the rules would now apply at least in a Europe where history had ended, do not apply. What has been called the post-1991 settlement has collapsed. What is this settlement? 
Fundamentally, it was that the <coughs> borders of 1991 will remain, that any changes, if they occur, will be negotiated as stipulated in the Helsinki Final Act, and that the use of force in Europe is not acceptable. There was an implicit division of labor. Russia would have a free hand on its own territory. We would not really say anything about Chechnya, but the rest would be taken care, the rest of the world outside of Russia would be taken care by the West through its institutions. It was believed that a post-ideological Russia would have nothing to do with authoritarianism, suppression of human rights, repression of dissidents, and especially not with the use of force beyond its borders. The assumption was that it was merely a matter of time before Russia became something like France or the UK, just another liberal, democratic, free market European state that neither attacks nor bullies its neighbors, which after all was something done only by bad communists but not Democrats, and who, thanks to its ever-deepening embeddedness within the system of rule-based organizations of the older democracies, would become another member of the Kantian world of perpetual peace. This, admittedly, Fukuyaman understanding of the post-1991 settlement came to be the basis of uh, policies of NATO and its erstwhile 16 member states, um, and indeed led to uh, considerable soul searching on the part in, by the members on what NATO's role is. Uh, we can see the importance of the post-1991 settlement uh, in policy, foreign policy and security thinking in the West by recalling that over a decade ago, Richard Luger in his foreign affairs piece titled uh, Out of Area or Out of Business, uh, which was ex originally an expression coined by uh, Secre <coughs> Secretary General Manfred Werner, was that um, NATO has no role anymore because there are no security threats in Europe. And if we want to keep this organization alive, then we have to redo the organization so it can deal with threats far away, out of the theater of Europe. The argument that with the was that a di the disappearance of a dangerous Soviet Union and all that, that it entailed, including defense of the Fulda and Giac gaps, if those terms mean anything to anyone here anymore, but there, there were long discussions about the Fulda gap in Germany, where, the t where, where people fear the Warsaw tanks coming through, and the GIUK gap, which is the uh, Greenland-Iceland-UK gap, whereby the ships from Murmansk would come through and attack the channels in sea channels. I, mean, I don't know what's going to do, happen with Iceland now, but that's a different question. Uh, but the idea was that the only way to keep the alliance intact was to deal with the challenges outside the traditional space of NATO. Enlargement, were there to be one, and there would be one or two, would be simply to further bind the new democracies, but there would be no contingency planning, no building of defense infrastructure, because there was no need to. And of course, I haven't even talked about the Kantian hopes for an enlarged European Union, because those are even far greater. From 1991 to 2008, there reigned a fundamental assumption in the European Union and NATO that post-Cold War Europe 
is forever free of the evils of its 19th and 20th century history. It's industrialized wars between industrial states with their millions of victims. States had matured, learned what, was it, what they had done wrong. The use of force was at worst something tin pot autocrats in the Balkans engaged in, but this did not threaten the, the general well-being of Europe. True, here and there, there were steps backwards. Perhaps elections in one or another state were not as democratic as we would have liked, or there were some questionable domestic practices here and there. But the fundamentals of security architecture were in place. States had the right to decide for themselves where they wanted to belong, be it the EU, NATO, Guam, the CIS. And if they met the entrance criteria, at least on the Western side, they could join. The idea of spheres of influence was merciful, mercifully dead and buried, though it turned out to be a vampire. For Estonia and the rest of the new members of NATO and the European Union, this is fundamentally the only paradigm that we know as participants, as subjects, not as objects. There is no one alive in our part of Europe who knows what it was to decide about our fates in pre-war, pre-World War II, the era. After a hiatus of half a century, we are once again deciding. We are participants in the CSE, later the OSCE, uh, uh, with our own positions. We negotiated our entries into NATO and the EU and then began to take part in the decision processes there as well. But all of this took place in the paradigm of the post-1991 settlement. We know no other paradigm than that. On the 8th of August 2008, this paradigm collapsed. The post-1991 settlement collapsed. Neither the European Union, nor NATO, nor Estonia, nor the UK, or Germany, or France, or the Czech Republic can possibly understand the nature of this change yet. Is it possible to continue with a value-based foreign policy in NATO and the EU? Does a pragmatic foreign policy promoted by some member states, what, is, what does a pragmatic foreign policy promoted by some member states mean for our own future policy? If, in the name of pragmatism, we shut our eyes to the behavior of one large neighbor because we want something, we want to sell something, uh, do, do we have a values-based policy to deal with the rest of the world? Does a European Union that wants as quickly as possible in the name of doing business get back to business as usual and ignores aggression, does it stand a chance of developing a foreign security policy that is not a joke? Can a common foreign security policy that is nothing more than the least common denominator where the po uh, and where the possibility of doing a separate deal is always there and can always torpedo a policy, can, that, can we have a CFSP in that case? I don't know. This is why I said I'm not going to answer the question. No one and no one wants to think that the Kantian paradigm of perpetual peace that we all talk about in Europe no longer works. We don't want to think about the Melian dialogues. We don't want to think of a world where the rules don't apply. But unfortunately, we live in a world where the rules 
no longer apply, at least they don't apply anymore to everybody. We are in a brave new world. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, President. That was a fascinating uh, speech by a, a head of state. I think it's, it's fair to say that um, Kant and Hegel appear relatively rarely in speeches by Her Majesty the Queen. Um, <laughs> she, she does refer to the czars from time to time, but that's because they're relations, so uh, uh, that's just being polite. Um, we do have uh, 15, 20 minutes for questions, and so I think that uh, rather than my occupy the time, I'm going to hand it straight over to the floor. Um, yes, that's first. And if you wait for a microphone and say who you are, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, William Horsley, uh, a journalist. Um, pre Mr. President, uh, what um, chance is there, do you think, uh, from your perspective of undoing this uh, parlous state of affairs if, if it is a kind of, uh, kind of surrender to uh, the use of force um, uh, among the allies in Europe and, and the West, and, and how would you set about it uh, in view of the potential for um, losing that adv commercial advantage and the danger of conflict that you hinted at? Well, I, as you could probably tell from the tone of my speech, I'm not very optimistic. Uh, I mean, we do see, in fact, the uh, uh, very strong pressures uh, on governments in Europe to uh, to get back to business as usual, uh, and uh, we see that happening. Um, I mean, I'll I would I would argue that, in, given and if you know anything about uh, I mean, those people who have followed sort of, uh, Russian foreign policy, I would say the problem started with the refusal to give the membership action plan to Georgia in Bucharest because. Uh, there was this misplaced notion that the membership action plan is membership. The membership action plan is open-ended and can continue for decades if we want. One reason why my country and many other countries that supported giving the membership action plan to Georgia was because of the complete and utter failure of the European Union's neighborhood policy, which, which was, which was uh, really uh, a policy based on an approach avoidance conflict of avoiding giving anyone the idea that might ever become a member of the European Union, so let's not give them anything. Um, and this, frankly, I think led a number of countries to say, well, we have to give these countries something. Now, the idea of not giving them even MAP, which I repeat, <laughs> is not membership. It's simply a toolbox for getting into these countries and saying, okay, you need to do this to increase transparency. This is very corrupt. You've got to open that up. But it is an effective tool. The signal that we're not even going to give that to them, I think, was interpreted as a green light that, okay, this is our sphere of influence, and we can go in there and do what we want. And this is why I find it highly unfortunate that uh, we have announcements that there will be no map either in December, because you're just sending the wrong signals. And I repeat, MAP is not membership. We went through the membership action plan in my country for five long, hard years, and I remember participating in meetings where people were tearing their hair out about all the things that we were being asked to do in order to meet the requirements. They're very tough. 
And there was no guarantee that we, we, we would become members. And in fact, one of the arguments was, why should we go through all of this hell when in fact there's no guarantee we'll become members? And well, basically the position was, well, we, ha we should do it anyway. That's not the point. So to come back to your original question, what can we do? I'm not sure. It doesn't look good that there's going to be much of a, um, much of a will to do anything. And I, if, I, if, I, if I didn't uh, misread what I said, what I read yesterday that uh, Italy wants to make Russia a member of the European Union, then I think, um, I mean, that's what I read, I mean, a statement by Berlusconi, I believe. Uh, I don't think uh, we're going to see much in that direction. Was that instead of Italy or as well as uh, Italy? But <laughs> not, not yet. A man in the second row in the middle. Jonathan Isle from the Royal United Services Institute here in London. Uh, may I ask you a more direct question about uh, NATO? You sort of said in hmm. passing that some issues were left ill-defined or unclarified when the enlargement waves took place. The question of pre-planning, the question of pre-positioning, the questioning of emergency procedures. Now, um, there is an area where we can do something. What would you want NATO to do? And are you slightly more optimistic about NATO's internal procedural reactions, leaving aside the question of Georgia's membership, uh, than you are, let us say, about the European Union's internal political discussions? Thank you. I didn't, uh, okay, let me say that. When I, uh, I think the situation is changing. I think that NATO is, uh, NATO is, uh, as opposed to what the Daily Telegraph wrote two weeks ago, but in fact there is no opposition to moving ahead and doing things. I don't know where they got that story. But in any case, I, I brought that as an example of, of the fact that what was considered normal for NATO earlier, which was doing contingency planning and pre-positioning and building infrastructure, uh, was considered uh, just unnecessary that we wouldn't bother developing contingency plans for the new members, for the 99 or for the, or for the 2004 enlargements, or, uh, because the situation was so different. Um, and that's what I mean by a paradigm shift, is that uh, we no longer, at least it's already being felt in NATO, I think, that, we, that, was, that the situation has changed, and the assumption that we don't need to do anything because all of the problems are elsewhere and involves uh, asymmetric threats or terrorist threats or, or issues like that, uh, and that we can forget about the traditional security threats that we have thought about, I think, disappeared on August 8th. I think that was the wake-up call. Thank Did you. I answer your question? Not enough. <laughs> Well, I mean, to dodge the question, I'll say every Estonian uh, military base is a NATO base. No, do, you want, do we want foreign troops? That would probably require a uh, change in legislation. I don't think that's really the priority in, uh, for us. I don't think stationing of foreign troops on our soil is the, is the issue. I think, uh, uh, I think what is fundamentally needed is an understanding that the <laughs> that uh, we're, we're not living in a uh, threat-free environment in Europe itself. Who's next? 
can I ask a question, uh, which is what, um, how would you like to see the, the relationship between the EU and Russia evolve? I mean, accepting that there has to be some kind of dialogue. I mean, what, what kind of relationship do, would you see as a, as a, a happy outcome, if you like, um, in terms of a dialogue between the Soviet Union or some kind of structured relationship? I mean, membership, obviously, that's a, a notion which seems a bit far-fetched. But to have some kind of structural relationship with Russia seems like something that could be useful. But what, how could you begin to articulate such a thing? Well, of course, the, it would be much easier if, if Russia took steps towards becoming a democracy again. I mean, that would make... <laughs> But I mean, seriously, I mean, uh, I mean, what is the point? I mean, how can you call a relationship with a country that behaves the way it does a partnership and cooperation agreement? I mean, you call something else. But, uh, uh, but aside from that, I, I think that, uh, I mean, we can continue uh, in those areas that are, that are, um, which I mean, in terms of, Moving Russia towards the WTO and rule-based behavior is a very good idea. Um, getting Russia to meet standards in sort of more technical areas is a very good idea for Russia and for the EU. But on the other hand, I think, um, for example, uh, visa policy has been disastrous. I would say that the European Union is complicit in part of what happened in Georgia because what it did was it, it gave Russia, it gave Russia visa facilitation, much easier access to the European Union, much more cheaply than for people living in Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia. And when Russia started distributing passports, I mean, if you were, if you were a Georgian citizen, as Abhazians and Ossetians were, I mean, there's a clear advantage to being, having a Russian passport instead. Uh, and in fact, uh, so too right now with Ukraine. It's better to be a Russian, uh, Russian passport holder than a Ukrainian passport holder because it's a lot easier and cheaper for you to go into the, to enter the European Union. Now the question is, what do we do? Do we, do we open up, uh, up everything for the Moldovans, the Ukrainians, the Georgians, which of course would make certain countries not be very happy? Uh, or or what do we do? I mean, right now we are fostering that kind, I mean, the kind of, uh, I mean, we're giving a tool for creating irredentism in the area between us and Russia. In those countries, we are causing, uh, we are at least, uh, if not causing, we're certainly helping create the preconditions for instability in the region with our own policies on visas, for example. And I think that's something it's fairly unconscionable because we are actually making it more unstable in, Geor in, mm -hmm. in Georgia and in Crimea than uh, uh, through our own behavior. Thanks. A question over here. Um, hi, my name's Teddy Nicholson. I'm an undergraduate at LSE. Um, uh, Mr. President, you talked in your speech about um, us living in a world where the rules no longer apply to some. And I just want to ask whether you felt that the recent decision handed down from the International Court of Justice relating to Georgia, that appear, where the judges appear to be split along regional lines, do you feel that that is a decision that is reflective of us living in a world where 
international law is becoming something that is increasingly a relative concept rather than uh, absolute in the Kantian way that I'm sure a lot of us would hope. Well, I think international law has always, I mean, international law has always been the weakest form of, of law. I mean, there, there really is, uh, and you can sort of, and countries have always taken a take it or leave it attitude toward it unless they're firmly bound in something such as the European Union where, in fact, that's, it's really at the level of the European Union that countries begin to take international law seriously. Um, because, I mean, the, the International Court of Justice is like the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, you, you vote for your friends. And that's, uh, that, well, the point is that it's, uh, there is no hard and fast, I mean, you don't really have uh, people there all with their blindfolds weighing justice. Uh, it is, perforce, it is going to have regional elements and it's going to have, there are going to be cultural and attitudinal differences. And um, I mean, it's the best we have, but, it's, and, but we also admit that it's not really very, very good. Yeah, down in the middle here. Just wait for the mic. Right, f front row. Thanks. Um, Mr. President, um, you just said that it would be you are. I'm John Ringer. I'm an uh, LSE undergrad, actually. Um, you spoke about how, how much easier it would be to deal with Russia if they were democratic. And why is it that after all of this time, after suffering under uh, undemocratic dictatorial regimes for centuries. Why, after 1991, did Russia not simply kind of fall into line with the rest of the post-Soviet regime, uh, post-Soviet nations, or most of the post-Soviet nations, into becoming a liberal democracy? Why do you feel, uh, why, why did that not happen? Why is Russia still this dictatorial nation? Why? Give, give us a clue. <laughs> well, I actually think that Russia was uh, moving in a very different different direction between 1991 and 1999 uh, that in fact uh, it was uh, I mean in terms I mean, if you talk to Russian journalists uh, or people in Russian politics uh, that it was much freer you did have a genuine freedom of speech uh, and so the change occurred later and I think uh, I mean there was a uh, Why that happened, I don't know. Uh, I mean, in fact, the question is why is it that so few countries became uh, became uh, liberal democracies? I mean, well, well, that's what I began my talk with. I mean, we consider, in my country, we consider self-evident that we went the way that we did. And if you're a Pole, you're a Czech, you go, well, obviously, this is what we always wanted. But uh, but I think they're all they're, they all have to do with the experiences of these countries. Uh, second half of the 20th century that there was such a strong desire to do it but if you take the range of countries that came out of communism in 19 the period 89-91 then actually the ones that we can say are these are sort of serious liberal democratic countries is actually in the minority and if you uh, and if you look you take the whole range you see that uh, the uh, the number of countries that have succeeded is actually fairly minimal uh, and even basically you could say the ones that are take uh, membership in the European Union uh, and or NATO as the true yardstick, then it is a very small number. Uh, and the countries that are waiting to get in, uh, which may be liberal democracies today, uh, are waiting to get in because they didn't get there until recently because they had, this, they had difficult transitions. 
And there are, uh, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, even in the case of Georgia, it's not there yet. Uh, I mean, they have, uh, I mean, there's much to do even there. Um, and so too with, uh, so too with, with Ukraine. And the issues are not simply having elections. I think uh, uh, Fred Zakaria in a book a couple of years ago pointed out that really it's rule of law that's probably much more important. And I think that uh, Francis Fukuyama in his book on state building points out similarly that uh, empirically, uh, even perhaps it's not about markets, it's not about just elections, it's really rule of law. And, uh, and rule of law, primary, and if you don't have that, you can have, as we have seen, you can have a lot of elections that look like free and fair, or they look like their elections. You have majorities, but I mean, if you deny access to some parties, uh, you prosecute people unfairly for political reasons, then it doesn't really matter if you, uh, even if the elections can be sort of look f free in the voting booth, but, but just part of the political spectrum has never gotten access to, to advertising or they get beaten up or they get arrested, well, that's, uh, that's a lack of rule of law and that means you're not going to get a democracy. I've got uh, I've two more people caught my eye and I think that may end up being uh, enough time. There's the first one down here in, in the front row and then I've got you up there and we'll see how we've got, if we've got any time after that. Uh, Martin Dewhurst, University of Glasgow. I'd like to go back to William Horsley's question about what we in the West could and should do in the light of recent developments in Georgia. Um, it seems incredible, but I understand that the BBC Russian service from January next year will be reducing the number of hours it broadcasts in Russian by 20 or 22 a week. I also gather that Radio Liberty, perhaps because of American financial problems, is also in the process of decreasing both the quality and the quantity of its broadcasts to Russia. It seems to me that when we talk about a new relationship with Russia, it's perhaps better not to speak about top-level official relationships, but what people can do at a lower level, at various lower levels, including the grassroots level. I'd be very interested to hear if the president has any comments on that. <laughs> Well, at least on on uh, on, uh, on the radio side of things, I think it's more difficult and complex because uh, back in the good old days, uh, Radio Liberty and uh, the BBC broadcast primarily on short wave. The next phase under Yeltsin was that you had contracts with local radio stations that would then rebroadcast or would broadcast in Petersburg, Moscow, wherever. On, on FM or AM, uh, what has happened uh, with both BBC and Radio Liberty and other foreign uh, stations, I, I don't know if it's happened with Deutsche Welle, but, um, uh, but local radio stations that have rebroadcast programs have been pressured uh, not to broadcast, and so that if you uh, I mean, if you're told that your license will not be renewed if you continue to broadcast, then people tend not to rebroadcast. Um, and the question is, how many people do you reach today in via short wave? I mean, perhaps uh, a different way of is, is taking some uh, taking the money and making sure you have a really good 
a really good web page that really c covers things, and then uh, maybe that way you can do it, because it, the medium need not be today uh, listening to sort of the old commercials with people listening to the radio. Through the, um, of course, you can uh, you can block uh, you can block websites uh, the same way you can you, you can jam radio broadcast, but but uh, I mean I think it would be a sad step to get to the point where BBC sites and Radio Liberty sites are blocked. Question uh, up there. I think it's fair to say, just for LSE balance, that Russia does at least have some private sector banks, which is no longer the case in Scotland. Um, but uh, <laughs> question up there. <coughs> Good afternoon, Mr. President. My name is Skiff. I'm a first-year student in LSE. Uh, in your speech, you were talking about morality and application of principle. Um, shall I just remind you that uh, the conflict between Georgia and Russia has started when Georgian troops went to South Ossetia and started killing Ossetian people and wanted to destroy Tsinvali. Um, I believe that you know that Ossetians, like Estonians, like French, like Brits, they are separate nationality. And you have correctly said that Democratic nations do not wage wars upon each other. So um, at the same time, if you're allowing yourself to say that Georgian government, if the Georgian government has started the conflict, and this is okay, your argument about the application of morals and same standards in foreign policy really falls apart. My question is the following. Are you deliberately using double standards, or are you just you know, forgetting the history? Thank you. I use double standards. Uh, I rate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I treat. I mean, if you're a Democrat, I view one way, and if you're not, I view another way, and that's uh, so. Yes, that's. Uh, I mean. But in any case, uh, well, I mean, we don't have. To, I mean, I would suggest reading Pavel Felgengauer on uh, uh, Russian analysis of the war and how it started to see who started what. Uh, I mean, if you if you have a military buildup that lasts for a long time before anything, if the if your uh, ships from Sevastopol are loaded with tanks and ready to unload in uh, in Abkhazia, I mean, they've gone out long before the war has started. That and of course that sort of does make you think that maybe the Georgians had some point about being pushed into war by constant bombing. Is, I think that the Georgian response to, uh, to go into Ossetia was, as we can say in hindsight, very unwise. But at the same time, I was called by Shakashvili for a number of days before that, before the, uh, before the 8th, saying that they're shooting at us more and more and more, and I don't know what to do, and I want to go in there. And I kept telling him, you don't want to go in there. You just don't want to go in there. Um, but, but the point is that I think he was pushed into it. And to look at the ferocity of the response, the fact that there were 800 tanks through the rocky tunnel in a matter of hours, which if you know anything about military affairs, you don't get 800 tanks through a tunnel unless you've done a lot of pre-planning. Um, that uh, this, is, uh, this is hardly something initiated by the Georgians. Uh, and I think what we really should have in terms of uh, sort of the, it would be nice if the Russian government uh, would allow the OSC monitors into Abkhazia and Ossetia to see what's gone on there rather than relying on their own figures, which also rather go up and down. But I have no problem with double standards. I think this is a line that we should get over. I mean, I think that uh, 
that we have standards we have standards for one set of people we treat one way and we have other standards for other people we treat a different way and uh, the standards and we I know that this is what we went through I mean uh, when Estonia was trying to get into the EU you know we say well you know you're you, you know you're requiring us to do all this stuff and what about yourself and you know and, and they say well you want to be part of the club then you follow the rules if you don't follow the rules you're not in and uh, and we treat you differently. And sure, you can continue to be there if you want. What is your last name, by the way? I didn't hear you. Just gave your first name. Uh, I'm <laughs> Actually, I think it does. I think no. I wait. No, no. Excuse me. I think it does. I think if everyone everyone says what their name is, and then you say it doesn't matter, then we have this situation of anonymity that really is that leads to the kinds of things you read on the websites with all kinds of funny names and people saying things. It's a good idea in an open society. Do not be ashamed of who you are. Well, my surname is Bengal. And if you're talking about other standards, well, same story. You were talking about the application of rules, which definitely should be applied. I'm not trying to glorify the actions of Russian government. But unfortunately, in the situation that was provoked by Georgians, this is a case of action. Chechnya wants to secede from Russia. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's okay. okay. Thank you. We've run, uh, we've run over time, and the President's been very kind to us, answer questions very fully. I'm going to give you a certificate in commemoration of your presence here. It's completely valueless, so you can accept it. Um, <laughs> We are delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Uh,